0: Firstly, I want you to, if you have a Bible, um, please gra- turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, either electronically or physically, please feel free to come and grab one of these Bibles up the front. And if you don't own a Bible at all, it's our gift to you. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's yours to have and keep, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and what we're going to do this morning is actually uh, spend a bit of time in 1 Peter in general in that 1 Peter 1 1 Peter 2. So I want, to have you, I want you to have your finger in between those two chapters. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to open God's Word now and read. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're listening in through on, a live on stream or live on stream, I don't know if that's a thing, online, I'll just stop there. And if you're listening in through the portable, we at this church don't believe that the Bible is just a book. We believe it is the very words of God uh, speaking to our hearts. So it transcends time, traditions. Uh, We're praying that through His Spirit, your your heart will, uh, even as we read and listen, that God is speaking to you. So would you, um, here is God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start in um, verse 9, and we'll stop at verse 17. Here is God's Word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperors as supreme or as to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not, as you, using, your, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Hey, if you're visiting, my name is Shabu. I have the great joy of being one of the pastors here at Canterbury. Uh, Whether if you're here in person, it's great to see many of you here, Uh, whether if it's online uh, or in the portable. Um, I just want to kind of update you on a couple of things from uh, the leadership. um. So you would have heard a bit of a hint today Narelle did a great job in giving you a bit of a taster to what we're going to be doing as a church uh, starting next week. We're going to be exploring the book of Hebrews. And so what that means is, Lord willing, we will also have a kids program which we normally run during uh, our time uh, in our church service, right? What we're moving towards is we've kind of tested it out these school holidays, um, both because we had to because of COVID restrictions. Uh, But the other thing is also during school holidays, we're not going to run kids' church. Uh, The reason for that is we want to be a church that we talk about being a church family. Uh, And one of the reasons that we love having kids here, we love the kids are running around and the noise is going on, that's okay for us. Um, Because we want your kids, whether they're your grandkids, or your sons or daughters or uncles. If, you're, if your niece or nephew, they're watching you, listening to you, and, and they're experiencing church as a family. And so we're going to do that. It's going to be like two Sundays. Uh, and that also means during that time, we'll have activities up the back. You can grab, uh, go for it. And, but we also said if, you, if you've got a little one, uh, and the creche is available. It's not like you have to go there. It's there if, you need, if it'll serve you. So I just want to uh, let you know what's going on in that, uh, in relation to that. This morning, as we consider the passage in front of us in 1 Peter, and particularly 1 Peter chapter 2 and also a bit of chapter 1, what I want us to consider is this. Know who you are. Know who you are. With that in mind, would you um, pray with me? Father God, the, the, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word remains forever. Jesus, as we continue this time of worship under your word, I pray that the good news of the gospel will convict all our hearts, encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts, refresh us this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that whoever we are, whatever season in life we're in, may we walk away knowing you more. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. And Lord Jesus, I plead with you, I cry out to you for your glory alone. In your name, amen. Uh, so, I grew up in the Middle East. Uh, I'm Indian descent uh, from South India, that's where my parents are from. But I grew up in the Middle East. And one of the things that growing up in this particular context, and particularly uh, as a Christian family, I assumed there were a lot of things that I was brought up with and thought, that's normal, that's what Christians do. So, some of the things I was growing up in is firstly, the very denomination that my, church, my family was part of, that's the only true denomination. And every other denomination, well, they probably got it wrong quite a few places. I assume that when you go to a church service, that the the men sit on one side and the women sit on one side. I assume that when you go to a church service, you shall never see a drum up the front. Okay? Maybe a keyboard on one of those special Sundays. I assume that women, when they come to a church service, should actually cover their head physically. Uh, They shouldn't wear any makeup and they shouldn't have any jewelry i assume that all christians around the globe who believe in the bible actually don't celebrate christmas because we never celebrated christmas because it's a pagan holiday then i came to australia and i thought what have i come to i remember as a 10 year old walking in with my little blue suit into the church that we went to and everyone else just wore normal clothes and lo behold Men and women sat together. And actually there was a drum up the front. And they didn't just, they sang not even out of a hymn book. And I thought to myself, what is going on? And I remember actually I went to a Christian school and I went over to, uh, for a sleepover to my mate's place uh, and the dad of the house said, let's have a meal together. We all sat down together. He said, oh, hold on a sec. He went to the, uh, to the table, grabbed a glass of wine, poured it, and sat down, and then he prayed. I remember sitting there as a 12-year-old thinking, I'm, Jesus is going to kill us right now. Now, friends, you may have views on it right now. I'm not trying to stir the pot, okay? Uh, here's the thing. All of us have assumptions and things what we think and assume this is what it means to be a Christian. Now, a lot of those things may seem as external stuff. Now, in my conversations with friends who don't know Jesus, when I ask them the question, which I often do, is I say, who do you think, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it, what is it who is a Christian to you? Right now, in Australia, the first person that they mention is the Prime Minister of Australia. In their mind, that's what it means to be a Christian. We assume that we hate certain things, that we're against certain things, that we don't swear, we don't drink, we don't sleep around. By the way, shouldn't be doing that, just clarifying that. Now, these are conversations I've had. I don't know if you've had those kind of conversations in your workplace, maybe even family members. The question you and I need to ask, is: so what does the Bible actually say? What, far more importantly, what is God's vision for His people to be followers of His? particularly those who call themselves children of God, particularly those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. What's God's vision through His Word? The verses in front of us are written by the Apostle Peter. He was a follower of Jesus. He, 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 he was a guy who got it wrong often. Uh, and yet, when he saw the resurrected Christ, uh, his whole life was transformed, and he gave his life even to dying for the sake of the gospel. He's writing this letter to a group of churches. He's writing to a community of followers of Jesus, and you see that in chapter one. They're scattered now, what's known as modern-day Turkey. It's a time when the Roman emperor was a guy by the name of Nero. You can look him up. He, was, he did not like Christians. Most historians say, though, that when Peter wrote this letter to those scattered churches, things hadn't, in a sense, Heated up. What I mean by that? There wasn't, in a sense, state persecution. So, state persecution is not happening, but the Christians at that time were starting to face persecution from their friends, their neighbours, uh, at the hands of these people who said, we don't like these Christians. So, Peter's writing a letter, and he's writing most likely from Rome, he calls this place Babylon, and this letter is a great, beautiful encouragement, it's instruction. He's wanting to draw this church, this group of believers, to gaze at Jesus Christ, to not as much focus on their circumstances they're facing, even the very temptations they face as a church, the very trials that they face. But firstly and foremostly, before he talks about what it means to live for Christ as his people, he wants to let them know, firstly, this wonderful and glorious truth. Now, this vision that Peter unpacks is nothing new. It's throughout the Bible. And if you were with Canterbury Gardens, you know that we were exploring the book of Exodus, right? And in the book of Exodus, God made it very clear. He said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so that meant that as the world looks on them, the nations around them, they look at them, they listen to them, see their practices, how they live, all those things, they go, there's something different about them. And God actually said to the people of Israel, hey, listen, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You see that in Exodus 19. And we know the story of the Bible, often they failed and failed, just like we all do. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who comes and lives the perfect life, dies the perfect death, is physically raised again on the third day, And people like Peter, who saw this, who heard this, whose life was transformed, and now goes and proclaims this truth, proclaims the good news of the gospel. And in chapter 1, if you flick across to chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, let me read this out to you. Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So what Peter's doing in this moment, he's saying to them, before we go into how you ought to live if you belong to God, let's set a foundation for you. Let, let's remind you of what is truer and sure, that is the good news Of Jesus what he has done and the implications of that he reminds them their hope is not in the sense of their very circumstance or even in a sense of ease of life or that there would be no persecution or no trial rather that their very hope the only hope is in the grace of the gospel and you see that in verse 13 and because of this the call is To live holy lives. Another way to say it is to live set-apart lives. And why do they do this? Is it just because, okay, they better do this, they're Christians? No, there's a much more beautiful motivation. Because God is holy, you be holy. And actually, what Peter's doing now, he's connecting the Old Testament into the New Testament in light of the fulfillment of what Christ has done. And then you see that towards the end of chapter of that chapter, he quotes again another verse in Isaiah 40 and says, Remember, all of this, all of this around us will eventually die. It's decaying. But the only thing that will be eternal is the word of the Lord. And here, Peter connects the dots and he says, What is that word? It is the very good news of Jesus that was preached to you. Friends, firstly and foremostly, to know who you are, to, for them to know who they are, for us to know who we are, first and foremostly, you must know who God is. Who God is and what He has done through Jesus Christ, His Son. For them to know who they are and for us to know who we are, not only must we know the good news, it must be the very thing that we rest in, that we embrace daily. And it must be the very good news that continues to shape your life and my life every day, every moment, in all areas of life. Now, if this is not true, what's going to happen is often, I've experienced in my own journey, is that we think, okay, I know the gospel, yes, I know the gospel, let me graduate, what else is there? Oh, yes, yes. The gospel, yes, the good news of Jesus, saved by grace. But, you know, Monday to Saturday, I can live as I please. Oh, yes, yes, it is the gospel. But just to make sure you're a real Christian, here are some extra things you need to add to that. See, throughout the New Testament, over and over again, the first thing that you will always hear the apostles write is the gospel the good news. It's like a reminder to them that they have to remind them. Even the very sentence that often says, grace of Christ be with you. It's a summary of the gospel just there in front of them. It's the reminder to them that if you're going to be people set apart, that the Christian builds their life, the first thing they need to do is set a cornerstone in that foundation that is Christ. And then that shapes everything, everything. If that's not true... We're just another religious group. So if you're a follower of Christ, you know, you and I, you may be someone who's really pious. You may be someone who's sort of in between, you know, just lukewarm, just there. The question is, what motivates us to be holy? What is the very engine room? Motivation needs to come because of Jesus and His good news you and I are always tempted to run for it for other reasons, whether if it's pride or even apathy. So Peter moves on from this good news. He sets the foundation for them. And because of this good news, he asks, this is how you're called to live. Have a look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Um, myself and one of the other pastors, John, we've been here for about nine years, I think, or maybe more, coming up to ten, I don't know. And the thing that I constantly grapple with in my own life and the thing that we as a leadership are constantly looking in our church life is more than about the numbers, actually... Is there a maturity growing on in the lives of the people who call Canterbury home? What is that maturity? Is there a sense of the very good news of Jesus? The gospel is something that continues to go, Oh my word, this is so beautiful. That's our prayer constantly. And that's the very motivation, the reason why we're then called to put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy and envy, all slander. I mean, the very fruit of those things, they're like tasteless things. They're they're sinful, evil things. And the language here is not just like, oh, you put it away and kind of, it's like, cut it off. It's very violent language. Because why? Why do we cut it off? You've tasted something better. You've tasted the Lord, that He is good the very goodness of it is displayed as we talked about in chapter 1, the beautiful, glorious display of Christ and the gospel. See, to know who we are and for them to know who we are, as God's people, the language here is we've got to desire it like a little one who wants mum's milk. Because it tastes so good, and that could be hungry too, but it tastes so good. We must taste that the Lord is Good. And because of this reminder, remembering the Lord's goodness in the very aspect and truth of the gospel, then that is the very motivation. When we taste that, we see and go, that is so much better than what the world offers. That's the motivation. Even when those moments come, because it will come, if it hasn't already, when you face trial, when you face persecution, when suffering will come, and temptations that you face. And the group that Peter's writing to, the group of churches, they've been reminded and refreshed in order that because of this good news, because they've tasted it, now they're called to live in a particular way. To know who you are, to know who they are, firstly begins with knowing what Jesus has done. That they are no longer dead because life has come. Just as Jesus, this language of the living stone, they too are a living stone. That They're being built up. There's such a beautiful picture going on here. It's a a picture of a spiritual house and the house that the very Spirit of God has come to reside in them. The very Spirit that raised Christ physically from the dead now lives in every believer. And not only that, it's not like they now have the Spirit of God. They just sit back. No, they have a role. What is that role? They're called to be a holy priesthood. Not just a priesthood, but a holy priesthood. As a people that have been set apart to bring offerings of sacrifice. Now, what this language is talking about, spiritual sacrifice, it's actually, um, another way to just say it, it, is describing that you're bringing yourself, as an offering you're bringing yourself to god and surrendering yourself to god that everything in their life is now has an impact everything god wants to look at and say bring it all to me as a sacrifice and this is only made possible this is only acceptable because of someone else's sacrifice in jesus christ have a look with me again. Why? Because of Christ. Have a look with me. Verse chapter, one, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they dis- disobey the word, as they were destined to Uh, Peter now is once again doing this beautiful work of connecting the Old Testament into the New Testament. He's connecting the dots for them and for us. He's quoting places like Isaiah chapter 2, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. But I don't know if you saw it, there's a contrast that's shown in front of us. To know who we are, to know who they are, they are to remember as people who have put their faith in Christ, firstly and foremostly, he's now the Cornerstone. To know who they are, to know who we are, they are to rest in knowing because of Christ and his work. With their faith in him, they will not be put to shame. While there's this contrast going on as well at the same time, as you see that? There are those who have rejected Christ. There are those who rejected his work. They see Jesus and who he is and what he's done, it's offensive to them. His commands, when they hear it and see it, their very heart posture is to diso- disobey Christ, just as they are destined to. It's strong language here. See, what, what, what Peter's doing is saying, listen, for you to know who you are, firstly, look and see this is not what you're meant to look like, who you're not as people who have rejected Christ because you have accepted Christ and His work. In 2022, if you are a follower of Christ, the question I have for you and for me, do you not just know this? Do you and I believe this? Another way to put it is, if we've tasted Christ and what He has done, in any way, shape or form, are we embarrassed to say that we are followers of Christ? Are we afraid to say that we are followers of Christ? And what this language here is saying, that if you say that you're a follower of Christ, people may put you in a corner and box you in. I don't know if that's true for you. I know there's been times for me that's true. Uh, In our world, particularly in the Western context, and this is something that's been carrying out in an Asian culture where I've grown up, shame... It's becoming more and more something that's coming into the Western context. You might have read about these kind of things already. The idea and notion of shame. See, when you and I put our hope and trust in Jesus, our precious Savior, that He's our only hope for salvation, that we have tasted the good news of Jesus, that it radically reorientates everything in our lives, everything, every area in our lives it means this you and I might not get that job promotion because you believe in Jesus you and I might be seen as strange and unpopular because of our faith in Jesus you and I might lose that contract that could set you up because they know that you are a follower of Jesus your friends might think that you're not actually inclusive enough because the gospel is exclusive. It's only by Christ alone, through faith alone. There's no, it's that's exclusive language. There may be people who may not like you or me or very social media posts, and I'm not talking about trying to cause an argument, by the way, just because you believe in Jesus. There may be friends of yours who may think you're raising kids and you're raising them in a strange way because you're teaching them that they should believe in the Bible and there is one God, there's Father, Son, Spirit, all this kind of thing. They they might think that's a bit strange that you're bringing your kids to being raised up as aliens and sojourners. There may be people who may think that you've joined a cult and if you're visiting, you're not in a cult, just letting you know. But the idea is that your whole life is shaped by the good news of the gospel. Now, I could go on, and you could probably add many of those things, more things to that. See, friends, if you know Jesus, more importantly, you are actually known to Christ, you will never be put to shame before God because someone has taken your shame on his shoulders. Now, you might experience in the sense of cultural or, or worldview of shame. And you know what? In the Bible, particularly early church, they faced it all the time. They were put to shame, but they weren't ashamed because of who they are in Christ. And that invitation is still the same for you and me today. And because they're in Him. And in verses 9 to 10, we're given this beautiful picture of the fruit of the gospel there's this idea of them being called you've already heard it right they're a chosen race when in reality for them that's such beautiful strong language saying that they're a chosen race prior to that over and over time in history they weren't seen and chosen in any way they were actually demeaned and pushed away they were seen as second-class citizens the language of they are a royal priesthood in reality, in their culture at that time, the growing, as, sorry guys, this is just dropping out, all good? Okay, notes, let's keep going. And particularly in that culture we're talking about, they weren't seen as royal in any way. That meant that that culture, that that early church, if you can just imagine Jews and and Gentiles or non-Jews, people from various backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and upbringings being meshed together because of this one truth would have been a powerful image for the culture around them. In many ways, they faced it, but their hope was not in what culture said, but who God said they are. Their identity was Grounding in this, and what is the very purpose of this? Is for them to just stick to themselves. No, see that to make known the very virtues. Uh, the ESV puts it this way: Excellencies. I love that. That is Jesus, the one who has called them out of darkness into the marvelous sight. That is Jesus. Once they were actually not a people at all, but now, more importantly, they're God's people. Even if the very nation that they're in will think that they're no one, once they were under the very wrath of a holy God, and they did not receive mercy, but now they have received mercy. Even if that means, in their culture at that time, eventually, over and over again, they will not be shown mercy at all because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They have received mercy. Uh, friends, I know in our church culture, particularly in our Western culture, we think of things individualistically and we may think of these verses it's about me friends I want to challenge you on that myself included often the letters are written to a group of believers to know that this is not just one individuals calling this is our calling as a church this is the story of the lives of those who put their faith in Christ and the idea is that to to have their hearts and our hearts to be so overwhelmingly beautifully captured by the grace of Christ, and we are so overwhelmed with thankfulness that He's chosen to show mercy to you and me, even though we did not deserve it. It's all because of Christ. Amen? Friends, do you know this? Do do you and I know who we are? But does that mean, because of that truth, you might know it, does that shape how we live? as a community. I think this is why Peter's taken so much time in this letter to lay that foundation for the Christians before he jumps into what, how we ought to live. How are they called to live? You see that in verse 13, right? The language is strong here. He's pleading with them. He's saying, because of this truth, this is who you are. Remember, this is not your home. You don't actually have a citizenship here. You're actually an exile from your true home in eternity, the kingdom that is to come. And the language that Peter was writing to this early church is to say, hey, stay away. Actually hold back. Actually prevent those passions, those desires, that wage war against your soul. Do you know what I find fascinating about this? Peter doesn't go into saying, hey, watch out for the big bad world out there. Did you see that in the verses? He says, the world is out there. Those things are out there. But remember, firstly and foremostly, look at the things that call out to you and say to you, those things that say, come and worship me, come and bow down to me. Those very desires, that war against the spirit, that Desires that are in the flesh. And another way to put it is maybe Peter's saying to them, hey, don't focus so much about those, that big bad world out there. Rather, the very freedom that Christ has given you, live with this freedom, not abusing it, but to live in knowing that you have to fight. Fight against those fleshly desires, that war against you and me every day. The very thing is to now invite invitation to come and worship. The very thing that continues to tempt you and I that says, come worship me, Peter's saying, no, no, go worship God, fight against it. Friends, I don't know if you know this, to follow Jesus means that you've been enlisted into war. It's a daily war, not as much about the out there, it begins in you and me as soon as we wake up. And this is where Peter says, See as soldiers and exiles, their allegiance is to the God who bought them freedom through Jesus Christ, not to the world and the various idols. I don't know, when I read these kind of verses, if it's ever happened to you, this is where we get that tension, right? That tension. This idea that Christians have been made free. This freedom means that we're actually called to live a particular way. That is to live and to praise God, to live as witnesses to this world. Another way to put it, the calling is now not to say, okay, I'm just going to live as I please. And those, those urges, those compulsive urges that war against you and me, there's actual action we need to take. But it doesn't mean one of those actions is to draw ourselves away from the world. And to head to the hills or to the caves like some did in the early church or to live in gated communities. What verse 12 speaks of is that we are called to also be witnesses. So when the very day comes, that day when Jesus returns, that the very life that they lead will bear witness. And on that last day... Particularly to those non Christians, they will glorify God. The Bible puts it another way that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a sense, too, that God will use their lives as a church as witnesses to draw people to them by His grace alone. Friends, this is very countercultural thinking, even in our Christian subculture. I don't know if you've experienced this, I've seen this, right? See, this is a reminder to them and to us. You and I live in this, what's known as the now and not yet world. You are called as exiles, There's a home that is to come, the eternal home. But until then, we belong to Christ. We're in this world. But here's the thing. we have got to also remember exiles that we don't get too comfortable in this world. I don't know if you've heard this. I've said this myself. I'm just going to set myself up, get comfortable. I've got to put my roots down here and my family's roots down here. Oh, Let me establish myself here first in this place. Oh, to that war that that calls out to you and I every day in our hearts to come indulge, worship, binge, enjoy in excess. They wage war against you and I every day. And you know what's happened, though? In church history, there's a few things that have happened. One, we set our roots up so deeply down into this world and culture that we lose sight of the eternity that is to come. And so in time, compromise comes. And so our friends who don't know Jesus can't really tell if you're a Christian or not. There are those who might say, well, yes, okay, we're going to keep ourselves away from all this stuff out there and you know let's let's go live out in the caves let's live in gated communities no engagement at all with the world or the culture in any way both individually and corporately but they forget the issue is not out there it's in your heart and my heart and then there's this language as well that sometimes we're so corrupted by the thinking of the world that we see everything as unclean now don't get me wrong, I think sin has corrupted everything. Give you an example. Sex. Who created sex? Not the world. God created sex between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage. It is good, it is beautiful. And what's happened in time is sometimes meaning either intentionally or intentionally Christians have taken it and made it this like don't talk about it, don't touch it, like just leave it. And maybe even in this church, there are many of you struggling with pornography, men and women. Because you've been taught, this is what sex is. But God has a far more beautiful and greater vision and view of what sex is, friends. We may be even raising those kids with great rules and regulations. You're doing the best that you can, but they don't see the why it's there for them. Perhaps they raise these kids the best that you can... But when that opportunity comes, either they're raised eventually as adults who know all the rules and regulations they think they're fine, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus as Lord. Or they get that first opportunity, and I'm that story, and they said, bang, I'm out of here. Maybe you're experiencing that yourself. I want you to know if that is you. We as a church love you. Please come and tell us. We will kneel with you and pray with you. Then there are those of us who say, okay, yeah, okay, be. I get it. Well, yeah, well, I don't want to you know, go out there and live by myself and kind of pull away from culture and world. You know, but I'm in grace. I can live as I please. So I'll eat in excess. I will drink in excess. I will watch certain shows. You know, I'll binge watch. Because oh, I'm doing cultural learning. Really? If Jesus is sitting in the lounge room with you, would he watch it with you? Oh, you know, it doesn't matter who I go out with. You know, they trust and they, 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 they respect my faith. It doesn't matter what work I do, Shabu. God doesn't care about that. Yeah, I know. It might compromise my faith, it might compromise my um, discipleship of my family. I'm spending so much time at work. It doesn't matter what I listen to, Shabu. You know, I listen to worship songs on Sundays oh you know sex and sexuality like things have changed the bible's pretty old and you know the view of the bible come on let's a bit more fluid isn't it friends i think what's really going on underneath all of that is this there's a temptation in all of us that we don't want to be seen as strange and weird we want to be accepted by the world around us Friends, to know who we are, we need to remember the very lives we lead, people are watching you and me. And you know what? The Bible invites you to be weird and strange. See, what this means that is, you know, I know this is happening in our church community. If you are dating someone and your friends who don't know Jesus look at you and say, what do you mean you haven't slept with each other yet? They will think that is strange. Praise God. Your workplace might find it really strange that you don't get involved in all the politics and the gossip and those what they call water cool conversations. Because you want to honor God. Because you want to put the faith in Christ first. That might mean that you might not say yes to that promotion. That you know will be great for your, in the sense of money, but you know will not help your relationship with the Lord. And you know what? People might find it really strange that you're on the trajectory of getting a great career and, and doing all these things, and, and you know you can use that for the glory of God, but at some point the Lord has convicted you for a people group somewhere, wherever it might be, whether here in Kilsyth or across the globe, and people look at you and say, You are strange. I mean, shouldn't you set yourself up first before you go anywhere? You know, like, you're going to take your kids with you in the middle of a pandemic? So even on a church level, our very community, the 10,000 or 11,000 people and growing in our immediate community should hopefully see us and think they're a bit strange. They believe that the Bible is true. They believe in the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They believe that Jesus actually existed, that he physically rose from the dead. There are things that should stir our community to say that's a bit strange, that we believe in grace and faith alone. Friends, I don't know about you. I've got a confession. I get it. There's a part of me wants to be accepted. My flesh wants to be accepted by my friends who don't know Jesus. The thing, the thing is, but when you and I... No, Christ, when our hearts grow in knowing we are accepted by the creator of the universe because of Jesus and his work, then only can we see ourselves as sojourners and exiles called to live in such a way, so bears witness to a world that desperately needs to know who God is and what he has done in Christ. That means, what astounds me, is that God is willing to use broken people like you and me, people who sin. I wonder if us as Christians, as a church, needs to be more focused on Jesus and his call for us to live as a royal priesthood and not worrying as much about what's going on in the culture in that we don't get caught up in, do you see what's going on in the culture? Did you see what they did to us? Dear friends, the more that you and I lean into as a church, we see ourselves where God sees us. It should hopefully, through the power of the Spirit, to push us out as God's people as we grow to know who we are. And you know what? As we grow to know who we are, guess what? We may face injustice. We may even face persecutions of many kinds, and you might even face death itself. But that's not our focus. The only battle that Christ invites you to is actually fight against that thing that you wake up to every morning that calls out to your flesh and say, come bow to me instead of Jesus. That's the battle he invites us into. Recently, a friend of mine shared a fairly long quote by a gentleman by the name of Mike Gore. Mike heads up an organization called Open Doors. They serve the persecuted church around the globe. Now, this is a quote, so... It could be argued, and you might not necessarily agree with all of this on here, but it really captured my heart. Here we go. Mike lives in Australia. Over the last two years, I've watched as many friends make needlessly inflammatory statements and proactive claims with, with muddy viewpoints that understandably press on the nerves of others. The sad thing is that in these moments, these same people put their hands up and claim they're experiencing a form of Christian persecution because of their faith. To be clear, I'm not saying that religious-based persecution does not exist in Australia, not at all. But what I'm saying is that if people chase persecution over Jesus, then it's not faith-based persecution, it's destructive narcissism. Persecution, in my view, is a consequence of successful Christianity. Elements of it will exist wherever gospel is being shared. In many ways, persecution forms a motor of the gospel, We only have the Great Commission because of persecution. Paul himself writes in 2 Timothy that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A persecuted believer once said to me, Jesus suffered for me, so how can I not expect to suffer for him? But here's the difference. When the persecuted church, their focus is to live by and live out their love for Jesus within the community, and it's this fact that invokes persecution. The challenge we face in Western societies is that in a misplaced effort to prove a point on persecution, we've stopped focusing on Jesus first, and in so doing, we've forgotten about sharing the hope he offers the world around us with grace and love. It becomes a point-scoring Christianity where we vie for attention with other groups claiming bigotry or exclusion, and the only quickening, the church slides into social, cultural, and political insignificance. We need to recommit to a Jesus-first approach to life, realizing he doesn't need our defending. He needs us to see him as the medicine of the world who offers hope and salvation. Let's stop mislabeling the rapidly changing values in society and culture as persecution Realize that when it comes to Christian values, we are the custodians, not government, not society, not others. I don't know what you think about that, but I've been living here in Australia for a little while, and for us, this feels like a strange time. Maybe what's going on, friends, if you live here in Australia, maybe we've got a little bit too comfortable. Maybe the Lord is stirring us to grow, coming back to being strangers and aliens and sojourners. Maybe perhaps the Lord is refining his bride, the church, here in Australia so that we can focus again on Jesus and get on with the job and proclaiming his truth. This is why Peter finishes off with in verses 13 to 17, what it means to "submitting to these civil authorities of the time." And, and Peter knows the really reason why those civil authorities exist is because God allows it to exist. And the invitation is, according to the Lord's sake, submit to every institution, everything, verse 15. This is God's will. In doing so, it bears amazing witness. It's a matter of lordship in Peter's view. Because they know who they are, the royal priesthood, it means they're commanded to submit firstly to God, and then they're to submit to those God is allowed to be in authority. Now, friends, I want you to know what this means. This is not Dan Andrews. We're talking about the Emperor Nero. Peter's asking them to submit. And the context here, slaves and masters, then he talks about husbands and wives, and the language is, Do it for the Lord's sake, God as your vision. This is God's will for you, church. In your submission, you're showing that God has ordained these authorities for His purpose, that they actually, whether they realize or not, are serving God's sovereign purpose. And we're not talking about they're not allowed to preach the gospel, and eventually they would not be able to, but they still did. It's talking about in everyday life. Friends, what this could look like, those authorities that God has allowed to exist in our state even now. It's tax time. Are you and I tempted to cheat on our tax? Because we don't want the government to have any of that stuff. Those things that are there for a reason, Whether they speed limits, they're not recommendations, they're speed limits. Should we wear a mask or no mask? that moment you say you're a christian you run a christian company do we pay the wages as we ought to actually probably even better than the world around us are you and i tempted to constantly look for loopholes see i know in our day and age when the restrictions come i don't know if you've done this i've got a secret to tell you and i know it's being recorded i could get in trouble for this My first reaction when the restrictions come in about even this Sunday, I am looking in my flesh for the loopholes. I don't know, I'm I'm guessing you guys don't do that, right? Friends, God has allowed these things for a purpose and for His glory and His sovereign plan. And here's the thing, you and I right now at this stage don't have guards with guns standing in front of the church building or in our homes, taking away people and property or anything at all. That is the reality of brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. The most inconvenient thing at the moment for me is this. Wow, that really sucks. I can still share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him. Maybe perhaps you and I focus so much on our rights and forgotten of our Savior who gave up his rights so you can have eternal life the one who's risen from the dead, the one who came to the world. He's the creator of the universe. He did not demand his rights. The one who was questioned about taxes, and he said, give to Caesar what is his. But yet the one who has all authority. If you remember that scene when he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate turns around and says, don't you know that I have the authority to set you free? And what did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me if we're not given to you from above. Jesus knows what is true. The one who on our behalf lived the perfect life, died the death we deserved. The one who declares as the resurrected one, all authority has been given to him. And he sends his church as soldiers and aliens to live lives that are displayed as a royal priesthood under the authority of Jesus and his lordship as the one who is described as the great high priest who invites us through the power of his spirit to put to death the things that wage war against you and me every day, to bear witness through our words and our life that we belong to Jesus. So Christian, do you know who you are? And if you don't know this truth, the first and foremost thing is you cannot know this truth unless you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if that is you, we would invite you to come and chat as we'd love to explain what that means. And maybe you're someone who's been exploring or been following Jesus for many, many years. Has the gospel of Jesus just become a gospel, a theological truth, or does it be the very engine room that continues to overwhelm you with awe and wonder? Its beauty, its depth, The very taste of it, does it still taste good to you? Maybe Christ is just simply inviting you to remember that again. Perhaps you're that person on Monday, you feel that temptation waging war, saying, come bow to me. Dear friend, if you know Jesus' invitation is not to do this on your own, confess to Jesus, confess to one another, battle together under the power of the cross there are many of us who are weary followers of Christ. The one who often feels that you are constantly condemned. If you are in Christ, because of what Christ has done, he sees you as a royal priesthood, his child adopted. Nothing will change that. He's purified your souls. And then he invites you to follow in obedience because of his love for you. And when you and I fail, not if, when you and I fail, turn to him straight away. For his love for you does not change. Dear church, in this season and the seasons to come, many things will challenge us and look at us and call at us for opinion. Sure, share your opinion. Get involved if you want to, but in the midst of investing, in the midst of saving up, buying, eating, drinking, enjoying Whatever season you're in at home raising sojourners and aliens whether at work no you are a Christian whether you're in the season of retired life you are a sojourner and exile this is not your home so live as such a way that your friends who don't know Jesus will go what do you believe in because it is Christ in us it's nothing that you and I have ever done It's his sheer grace that he will draw people to himself. And it's all for his glory. This is who you and I are, sojourners, exiles, bought by the precious blood of the Lamb, set aside to be a holy people, living, that displays that we belong to him and that we're not of this world. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you as our great Savior and Lord, For those of us who know you, help us to live as you've called us to live. For those of us who don't know you, convict our hearts, Lord. Turn us to you in faith. Jesus, we thank you for this great joy and privilege. We pray this in your name.